A quick word of warning before we begin. This episode includes a brief discussion of sexual assault at gigs and festivals. You know, we're not sponsored by Spotify, but we really should be. Temporary Fandom started life as a Facebook group that's now over 1,000 strong, and almost every weekday we steer those listeners towards a particular album, sometimes raising fractions of a penny for struggling artists, perplexed by the sudden spike in interest in their forgotten records. This podcast, which you're listening to now, is an attempt to bring that process to a wider audience. We choose an artist and listen to their complete discography, warts and all, and then we talk about the experience. Anyway, if Spotify, or any streaming service for that matter, wish to acknowledge our hard work, get in touch. We're long overdue a sponsor. But enough of that. You can find us at tempfans.com and on all the major podcast storefronts. And in the show notes, we link to a special playlist edition of the show that cuts the talk together with the tunes. It's on Spotify, of course, but like I said, they should be paying us. Today, we have the first of two amazing episodes for you, with a truly brilliant list of guests. So I won't keep you here any longer than necessary. Let's get down to business, as Temporary Fandoms takes on the discography of US punk giants Slater Kinney. Hello there, welcome to Temporary Fandoms. Uh, again, I have no idea which episode this is. We're in season three, but this one might be coming out as episode four, or it might be coming out as episode eight. That decision will be made tomorrow. Anyway, I'm Ewan. I'm Nick. And I'm, I'm sort of really excited about this, uh, this one. It's going to be slightly chaotic, um, but I think we're going to be covering some really good stuff. Um, and we'll explain as we go. So first of all, one of our many guests today... Oh, by the way, in previous episodes, I've sort of rushed through things and just sort of said hello to people and not sort of properly introduced them. So I've got notes. We have got uh, author of the upcoming 33 and third book, Come Away With Me with ESG, writer, articles appeared in things such as The Skinny, She Shreds, um, O'Comely magazine, which um, if you're listening to this, the last episode was Neutral Milk Hotel that we recorded, and O'Comley Narrative Klaxon was named after the Neutral Milk Hotel song. Um, also, broadcaster, the, the other woman on Soho Radio, Cherie? Yes, she's nodding at me. Um, and, and more importantly, um, guitar and vocal in 2007, Steve Lamax's favorite band of the year, Gossip Rockers, Violet Violet. Cherie, welcome back. Goodness gracious, what an intro. Thank you. Done my homework for You once. have. Um, have you got my mum's name back there as well? <laughs> uh, yeah, bank details. Sort of <laughs> <things like laughs> yeah. um, and speaking of Violet Violet, uh, I'm going to say sister in arms, uh, or sister in drumsticks anyway, um, and now driving the beat of legendary post-punk band The Nightingales, returning to the pod, um, last heard in our fall episodes, Fliss Kitson. Hello, Fliss. Hello, thanks for having me back. You're all welcome. Oh, and now we've got someone new. Um, new to the pod, and we're very excited. Uh, we've got the author of Girls to the Front, The True Story of the Riot. Okay, do we say just girl, a riot girl, like a pirate? Because there's loads of R's. You can it however you want. <laughs> Girls to the Front, The True Story of the Riot Girl Revolution, and also writer of some uh, other amazing pieces you can find out there on the New Republic and The Nation. We've got Sarah Marcus. Sarah, hello. Howdy, nice to be here. Great to have you. And welcoming back, uh, didn't have him in season two, but he was all over season one. A longtime friend of the pod, 
He was in Bowie, Bowie, Yola Tengo. And also the only time I really get to say, oh, yeah, occasionally I'm on a pod with someone who was on Radiolab. It is lexicographer, <laughs> wordsmith, uh, music nerd, and, well, it's Ben Zimmer. Hey, Ben. Hello, hello. Good to be back. It's great to have you back. And Ben, as you were the last in that round, I'm going to ask you, who are we doing today? Well, we're going to break down the Slater-Kinney albums into two parts. So for the first part, we're covering 95 to 2000. So in 95, we have the band's uh, self-titled debut album. That's followed by uh, Call the Doctor from 1996. Dig Me Out was in 1997. The Hot Rock was in 1999. And... All Hands on the Bad One came out in 2000. And um, I'll be doing intros, but I'm very happy that uh, Sheree and Fliss will also be joining in on uh, these intros. Sheree doing the intro for Dig Me Out and Fliss for All Hands on the Bad One. Perfect. Thank you very much. And in case you missed that, because we didn't really say at the beginning, it, it, that's Slater Kinney, Slater Kinney, um, which we are splitting into two, into two episodes. Um, so I've been talking for quite a lot. And if you're listening right now and you're a regular listener of the pod, you're thinking, yeah, this is going way too long. You and just move on. Let's get to the next bit. Um, the first voice you're going to hear after the sting will be Ben. Uh, you're going to be talked through um, five of the Slater-Kinney albums. If you're listening on the Spotify playlist, there will also be some songs on there. And then we will all be back later. So see you in a bit. Where to start with Slater Kinney? How about starting with their own words? From their musical manifesto, Words and Guitar. From their earth-shaking 1997 album, Dig Me Out. Corin Tucker joyously shouts, Words and guitar, I got it. Words and guitar, I want it. Way, way too loud, I got it. Words and guitar. And then Carrie Brownstein sings right behind her, Can't take this away from me. Music is the air I breathe. Can't take this away from me. And for more than 25 years now, with some breaks along the way, Tucker and Brownstein have been sharing that all-consuming passion at the core of Slater-Kinney. Music has been the air that they have breathed, going all the way back to the band's roots in the feminist riot girl scene of Olympia, Washington, when Tucker and Brownstein were still just college students and they left their old bands behind to join forces and create a fantastic run of albums for most of them, accompanied by kick-ass drummer Janet Weiss. The power of their music has been thrilling to experience over the years. I still remember when I first put on Dig Me Out in 97 and heard the title track, Carrie's brilliant opening guitar riff, followed by Janet's drum wallop, and then Corin's wild vocals. It was the most exciting music I had heard in a long time, and I just wanted to turn, turn it up way, way too loud. By 2000, it was easy to agree with the pronouncement of Grill Marcus in the pages of Time magazine that they were America's best rock band. Even if they've never managed much chart success, despite being such critical darlings. While Brownstein achieved a level of fame for her satirical TV show Portlandia with Fred Armisen, the band's music has always flown a bit under the radar of mainstream acceptance, which is how they've wanted it and explains why they've stuck to indie rock labels, from Chainsaw in the early days, to Kill Rock Stars, to Sub Pop, to most recently Mom and Pop. And because they never got burnt out by fame, that has allowed them to take their careers at their own pace, indulging in many side projects 
and going on a nearly decade-long hiatus before bringing the band back in 2015. And while they've undergone many changes over the years, most notably the departure of Janet Weiss in 2019, Slater Kinney has remained committed to their staunch musical independence. First, let's go back nearly three decades to October 23, 1992. Students at Western Washington University in Bellingham, Washington, near the Canadian border, invited a lineup of bands to play at a downtown gallery. The headliner was supposed to be Bikini Kill, but they had to cancel due to a family illness. Bikini Kill frontwoman Kathleen Hanna had started up the band in Olympia, Washington, home of Evergreen State College in 1990 with Toby Vale and Kathy Wilcox. Together, they pioneered a vital new style of political punk empowering women's voices that went by the name Riot Girl, spelled G-R-R-R-L. Toby Vale had used that spelling in a zine that she published called Jigsaw, and it was picked up by Allison Wolf and Molly Newman of the band Bratmobile, who published their own Riot Girl zine. It must have been disappointing when Bikini Kill had to cancel that Bellingham show, but two other bands still made it to the gig. The Vancouver group Mecha Normal, whose frontwoman Jean Smith had helped inspire the Riot Girl sound, and a new band from Olympia called Heavens to Betsy, led by Corinne Tucker, backed by her fellow Evergreen State student, Tracy Sawyer. Among the Western Washington students in the audience for the show was Carrie Brownstein, who had become obsessed with the new music coming out of Olympia, including Heavens to Betsy. After the show, Carrie approached Corin and earnestly asked her for more information about the Riot Girl scene. Corin pulled out a notebook and had Carrie write down her address. At that moment, as Carrie would later recall in her memoir, Hunger Makes Me a Modern Girl, she knew she wanted to transfer to Evergreen State just to be part of the action down in Olympia. The biggest pull for Carrie was the distinct sound of Corin's voice. As she later wrote, the voice asked to be listened to, but did not beg or plead. It dared and challenged, it confronted, but needed no reply from the listener. When Carrie got to Olympia, she started her own band called Excuse 17. She and Becca Albee both sang and played guitar with CJ Phillips on drums. These Olympia bands didn't seem to care much for bassists. The bands in the scene also liked to mix and match members, forming various side projects. And before long, Corin and Carrie decided to try putting together their own band when they weren't busy with Heavens to Betsy and Excuse 17. And when they weren't busy taking college classes, but that wasn't their main concern. The band name that they came up with indicated they weren't thinking too ambitiously at first. Slater Kinney was just the name of a road off of Interstate 5 in Lacey, Washington, near Olympia, where they had a practice space. By the way, locals pronounce the name of the road Slater Kinney, not Sleater Kinney, and that's how the band has continued to say the name. Corin and Carrie also started dating around this time, and their short-lived relationship and subsequent breakup would heavily inform their first few albums. They became pen pals with Stephen O'Neill of the Australian indie group The Canaines, and he invited them to come to Sydney. In 1994, they took him up on the invitation, crashing at his place and working out songs in his living room. They enlisted drummer Laura McFarlane, who was publishing her own zine called Woozy, and would go on to form a band called 99. The three of them recorded the first Slater-Kinney album in Melbourne, 
and it came out the following year on Donna Dresch's Queercore Chainsaw label out of Portland, Oregon. As Carrie would later recall, many of those earliest tunes didn't even have names. We called them Last Song, Slow Song, as if it were enough to merely have a song, a band, titles, who needed them? These were crude, blunt stabs with cookie-cutter structures. We didn't do any editing. The first idea was the only idea. There was no best, worst, or better, just raw attempts. You can hear on the album, Corn and Carrie were still figuring out how to combine their distinct voices and guitar work, but it's an auspicious debut. Lyrically, they were in line with other Riot Girl acts of the time, but with more of an emphasis on exploring interpersonal relationships, especially of the same-sex variety. Laura's song, with Laura McFarlane singing, would be the first and last time that lead vocals were handled by someone other than Corin and Carrie. Standouts include The Day I Went Away, the album's catchiest song, where the verses play out like an argument between Corin and Carrie over how to break up a relationship. A Real Man coming in at a little over a minute long is the song most clearly in the Riot Girl tradition, with Corin fiercely clapping back at the patriarchy. Be Your Mama is another raw, visceral track subverting gender roles. And on the closer, the last song, Carrie screams, I don't owe you anything, a defiant statement of purpose. Corin Tucker and Carrie Brownstein figured out their winning formula on their second album, Call the Doctor, from 1996 as they left behind their old bands, Heaven to Betsy and Excuse 17. On Call the Doctor, they focused on crafting what Carrie would later call, quote, a single sonic sound with two guitars, two conversations. That dual conversation approach comes through straight away on the title track, with their voices seeming to talk past each other. Corin sings, This is love and you can't make it, while Carrie counters with, Look out, they want what you know. And yet, despite never quite cohering in a traditional way, they really do create a singular, powerful sound together. Carrie sounds a lot more confident here, with her voice breaking through on songs like Stay Where You Are, I Want to Be Your Joey Ramone, and The Closer, Heart Attack. I Want to Be Your Joey Ramone is a real standout. As Carrie said later, quote, we were playing with all these archetypes, especially these male archetypes of rock stars, almost like a child going into a closet and putting on these fancy clothes. But even as they were playfully sizing themselves up against male counterparts, they were proving that they didn't need any external approval to make great punk music of a kind that no one had heard before. A footnote to I Want to Be Your Joey Ramone, Sonic Youth's Thurston Moore gets a shout out in the original lyrics, but after he and Kim Gordon split up after he cheated on her, the band changed the lyrics when performing the song. Now instead of, I want to be your Thurston Moore, it's, I want to be your Kim Gordon. For more insights into how Slater Kinney came into their own on Call the Doctor, I quote again from Carrie Brownstein's always insightful memoir, Hunger Makes Me a Modern Girl. Seriously, you should get this book, it's amazing. Uh, Carrie writes, quote, We weren't trying to form a solidarity with anyone but ourselves. Could you sing along to Slater Kenny? Sometimes. But we would just as likely shout over you. And good luck trying to sing along with Corin. Trust me, I know. It's nearly impossible. As a listener, you have to decide what to follow in the song, which vocal, which guitar. This way of writing and of singing was something we tacitly understood. 
We never discussed it. We never mentioned counter melodies. We didn't want to sing harmonies. Our songs weren't pretty, nor was our style of singing. It sounded scarier to not sing together, rarely allowing the listener to settle into the music. Everything inside the songs was constantly on the verge of breaking apart. Corin's voice, the narrative, the guitars, so few moments provided any respite at all. If we did sing together on the chorus, it was only after a strange, uncomfortable verse. Yet the result was forceful. It sounded like a tightly bound entity, fragments clinging to each other for dear life. If you pulled one thing apart, it wouldn't even sound like a real song. It was a junkyard come to life. If Call the Doctor confirmed the band's reputation as one of the West Coast's new music deities rebelling against gender roles, consumerism and indie rock's male-dominated hierarchy, Dig Me Out turned that rage up to 11. The record is often referred to as their breakthrough album and took the band from cult corner of the Pacific Northwest to international acclaim. This was the first of the next four records that the band would release with Olympian feminist and now iconic indie label Kill Rockstars, which singer and guitarist Corin Tucker thought had better resources to ensure the band's distribution. But none distilled the band's sound and attitude like Dig Me Out. One fundamental shift behind this step up comes in the form of powerhouse drummer Janet Rice of Quasi fame, who would go on to be the longest serving drummer of the band and whose propulsive drums take the momentum of the band's sound and drive to a whole new plane. Speaking to Addicted to Noise, Tucker explained, musically she's completed our band. She's become the bottom end and the solidness that we've really wanted for our songwriting. The album cover is a homage to The Kink's 1965 album, The Kink Controversy, only arguably with a cooler shot of Corin's Dan Electro, possibly another reason why I loved it so much as I went on to fall for a Schecter with lipstick pickups. As a fan of The Kinks, Weiss explained that the cover suggested that Sleater Kinney could be an example of a revered rock band. Recorded at John and Stu's place in Seattle, Washington, named after producers John Goodmanson and Stuart Halliman, whose first clients would be Pearl Jam and who Sleater Kinney would later go on to open for, and the same place that Mudhoney recorded Touch Me I'm Sick and the site of the first Nirvana demo session in 1988. In the studio, there was a lot of focus on those dynamics and that interplay between Carrie Brownstein and Corin Tucker's tallying vocal lines, as Goodman explained in an interview. We always use different mics for the lead vocal and for the second vocal, or different kinds of processing to make those things really distinct, to make it so you can hear both things at once. The two singles then, Little Babies, which critiqued motherhood stereotypes, and One More Hour, one of the most devastating breakup songs in rock. It was a song about Carrie and Corin's short-lived romance and provided the unusual scenario of writing a song about breaking up with your girlfriend and then having her sing backup vocals on the song you wrote about her. In fact, in her 2015 memoir, Hunger Makes Me a Modern Girl, Brownstein shared that almost all the songs on Dig Me Out are about either her or Tucker's future husband, Lance Bangs. Elsewhere, Dance Song 97 boasts Devo-esque 80s keyboards, and my personal favourite, Words and Guitar, is an ode to rock that just feels so necessary. Funnily enough, title track Dig Me Out did peak at number six on the KEXP Top Album Chart in 97, but it was never actually released as a single. 
The whole record just channels the idea for me of being a young woman, being present with your anger and feelings in a world where men constantly expect you to be submissive and sweet, as not what you want channels in bucket loads in the chorus, as Tucker belts, tell me baby, what's wrong? It's not what you want, it's everything. When I saw the band reform for the first time in over a decade at the Roundhouse back in 2015, they performed Dig Me Out as the final track of their encore, following a righteous go at Youth Decay and Modern Girl. Dig Me Out, as it so rightly says though, you got me for now. After the searing punk energy of Slater Kinney's first three albums, culminating in the fireball that was Dig Me Out, the band decided to tone things down a bit, subverting expectations for their eagerly awaited fourth album in 1999, The Hot Rock. They brought in producer Roger Moutinho, who they admired from his work on Yola Tango's sublime 1997 album, I Can Hear the Heart Beating as One. And they stretched out, by recording over a period of a few weeks rather than a few days as on previous albums. The result is, in Carrie Brownstein's words, quote, a labyrinthine record, sad, fractious, not a victory lap, but speaking to uncertainty. That lack of certainty is evident from the first line of the opener, Start Together, quote, if you want, everything's changing. But even though this is the band at their most subdued and introspective, each song showcases a fascinating interplay between Corin and Carrie's voices, their two guitars, and Janet's drums, rewarding repeated listening. Highlights include Burn, Don't Freeze, with Corin and Carrie's dueling perspectives on a doomed relationship. Get Up, the album's first single, with meditative lyrics and a sonic youth vibe, The Size of Our Love, a real tearjerker from Carrie, complete with strings, and the jazzy closer, A Quarter to Three, also released as a single. All in all, it's a real soul-searching album as the band worked through their own sense of identity. While their experiences recording this album and touring for it were apparently quite difficult, they would emerge with more maturity and wisdom. 15-year-old me would be totally made up to know in 20 years I'd be coming on a podcast to wax lyrical about a band I had fallen head over heels in love with. A band who were the reason I became a musician. Their music taught me to grow and become who I am today. I probably won't be the most articulate or fact-check person on this panel, but I can tell you what I discovered and what these records mean to me. All Hands on the Bad One is Slita Kinney's fifth studio album. Recorded in Portland and Seattle, they reverted back to their producer John Goodmanson to capture their live sound again, returning to making the album sound explosive and heightened. As a follow-up to The Hot Rock, which was a record that definitely shone a bigger spotlight to them, they sure did come up with the goods. It's the first time we hear drummer Janet Weiss singing, which leads to a record packed with three-part harmonies and, in my opinion, it really is their most melodic, catchy and most accomplished album to date. To quote Janet, this record is all about having your voice be heard and so it was natural I started singing and saying something now. They tackle subjects such as eating disorders in youth decay, 
journalism in the professional, morality in the title track, and misogyny and the Woodstock rapes in hard-hitting, really moving, number one must-have. I learnt a lot about feminism through this record, actually, and it took me back into Riot Girl. You can hear, literally in the lyrics and the power of Carrie's projection, that there was yet again more frustration, and also frustration about the commercialisation of girl power, and tracks like Male Model make a stand against women being pushed out of the conversations and off the stage. The whole record, for me, is driven by Janet's complex rhythms, alongside sparkling melodies, hooks galore, but the grit does still remain. Youth Decay was one of the first Lita Kinney songs I ever heard. It made me believe I could start a band and I could say what I wanted to say in music as my outlet. It soaked up all of my passion about Riot Girl and is essentially a pop rock song, What's Not To Love. Tucker's voice really comes into its own on this record and it certainly reaches extreme new heights on the next two albums to follow, but for sure a driving force here. In an interview with Mix Online, The band say how inspired they get by women playing music and they want other people to be able to have that as well. Hopefully this album can do that. And that it has done. A few months after discovering this record, I started drum lessons. Hello there, welcome back to Temporary Fandoms. And this is episode one of Slater Kinney. Um, if, if you're from the UK and that makes you think of EastEnders, just call it Sleater Kinney in your head. You'll be absolutely fine. Um, okay, so we're, go- we're going straight towards the first album. But first of all, let's see who we still got. We've got Cherie. Hello, Cherie. Hello there. We've got Sarah. Hello, Sarah. Hello. Ben. Hi there. Uh, Fliss. Hello. Oh, yeah, Nick. Nick. I always forget yeah. Nick. And Nick. I'm, I'm here. <laughs> and me. I'm Ewan, as you know. Okay, so let's move on to the first album and let's try and get some some scene setting. Um, so obviously we're in a world, in a world where sort of grunge had exploded, uh, become a t-shirt, become a badge, sort of disappeared a bit, um, very male-orientated rock uh, sort of scene. Um, there had been some sort of, uh, some movement of, of female punk bands, maybe sort of in the late 80s, early 90s. Um, the one I'm name checking because I absolutely adore them with the lunatics who I think were dismissed as sort of Fox core was the phrase I found while I was Googling. Um, how did Riot Girl as a movement start? Also, did the, ner- did the term Riot Girl come from those in the movement or was it something pushed on them by other labels that we've sort of mentioned in the past? I'm going to go straight to you, Sarah, because... You wrote a book on the scene, so I'm hoping you know more than me. Um, how, what, what was happening musically and in the scene at that time? Okay, I'm going to throw down some Riot Girl 101, and then we can you know, do a little cleanup afterward to kind of nuance the question of Lake Slater Kinney's relationship to Riot Girl, because Slater Kinney itself couldn't have happened the way they happened without Riot Girl happening, but... To call Slater Kinney itself a Riot Girl band is kind of complicated. And that's not actually like my own hair splitting. This like comes from the band members themselves. Like, uh, so, but before we get into any of that, I will be very, very happy to lay down some Riot Girl science for all of us. Riot Girl starts out in the summer of 
wait, now I need to pick up my own book. You know, so I wrote this book. It came out in 2010. And like, it's like everything in my brain about Riot Girl like went out into the book and it's not in my head anymore. It's been completely externalized. Um, and so especially when it comes to years, sometimes I'm like, I'm just going to get this year wrong if I don't look at my very own book. That's the best plug for a book I've ever heard, by the way. Please read the book. It is my brain outside my body um, (laughs) up to 2010. Everything after that is in the book that I'm finishing now. All right. If if you want to talk about what Riot Curl is, you have to start in the summer of 1991 in Washington, D.C., where for the summer, the Olympia-based feminist punk band Bikini Kill and the bi-coastal Olympia slash Washington, D.C.-based feminist punk trio Bratmobile are spending the summer playing shows together, writing songs, and working to kind of kickstart a feminist punk community in D.C., all right? So this is a summer when members of Bikini Kill and Bratmobile start making a um, a regular fanzine. At first, it's just like a single piece of paper folded up into quarters, and they title that Riot Girl with three R's in the girl. So the name comes from the folks. It's not imposed from outside from the beginning. Does it get then later on misapplied to various groups because somebody's yelling or somebody has an electric guitar? Absolutely, absolutely. But it's like, there, it was like a particular like aesthetic and punk and um, political formation. Like people went to Riot Grrrl meetings. There were chapters. There were people who like really were this. And then there would be other people who would be called Riot Grrrl and they'd be like, you know, Riot Grrrl is a cool thing, but I... Like, I am a punk, I am a feminist, that's not exactly my deal. So to orient us, um, first of all, this scene, its heyday is basically like 91 to about like 95, 96. That's the real, like, there are definitely folks who will like consider themselves Riot Girls going forward from that, especially like younger folks, fans, people who get into the culture and identify with that. But as far as there being like, Riot Girl conventions, Riot Girl meetings, um, a real like network of a sense of people who are like, we are on this sort of project together, building something together. That's 91 and 96. So as um, you, I've talked about Bikini Kill, I've talked about Bratmobile, um, keen minds will have noticed that Corin Tucker is not a member of either of those bands. Her band is the third Riot Girl band to come up out of the Olympia scene. It's called Heavens to Betsy, and it's a duo band. It's her and her friend from high school, Tracy Sawyer. And they played their first show at, um, at Girl Night at the International Pop Underground Convention in Olympia, which, um, paging through my own book to make sure that I get the date right, is um, the end of the summer of 1991. It all happens this summer. Right. They're in D.C. all summer and then they drive back to Oli to play this festival at the end of the summer. It's a quick question. If this was uh, a movement that was happening in the summer of 91, um, I mean, it's almost overshadowed historically in the music press by what happened at the end of the summer of 91, which is basically grunge happened. Grunge happened in terms of the music press and globally. Yeah, Nirvana I mean, Nirvana's, Nirvana like hits it big at the end of 91, absolutely. And there's connections between Nirvana and Bikini Kill, of course. Like, they're close friends in Olympia, basically. And in fact, um, Bikini Kill opened for Nirvana in Seattle at a Halloween show in 1991. And that the title Smells Like Teen Spirit rather famously came from a, a drunken night with uh, with Kurt and, and uh, Kathleen, right? Yeah, Kathleen. Yeah. You, you can finish this. No, story. no, you, you, please, please. You no, tell just got Kathleen spray painted Kurt Smells Like Teen Spirit on, on the wall of Kurt's apartment. 
Um, so that's where that that's where that line comes from. Um, no, perfect. Thank you very much. Um, okay, so how do we get from there to the first album? Um, I'm going to go to you, Ben, because I know you do an, an amazing amount of research, and we're going to get some proper data. And then I'm going to sort of go over to for opinions on the album and whatnot from Cherie uh, uh, and Fliss. At some point, I'll, I'll speak to Nick, but he, yeah, he's sort right. of just there. Um, so, Ben. Um, so we've got this movement. There's a summer of night. There's a summer of '91. There are seminars and meetings and, and whatnot. It's actually something uh, official, semi-official. Um, how does this become Slater Kinney's first album? Well, as Sarah mentioned, um, Corin Tucker uh, was in one of those pioneering bands, Heavens to Betsy, one of the, the original Riot Girl bands coming out of. Olympia, Washington. Olympia is the home of Evergreen State College. That's sort of important for this whole story. A lot of the uh, the members of these various bands were students there or at least hanging around campus. Um, and so Heavens to Betsy was uh, gaining some uh, renown just locally uh, as part of this whole Riot Girl scene. Uh, meanwhile, a young Carrie uh, Brownstein was at a different college, Western Washington, University, which was a bit further north up by the Canadian border. And uh, she was getting obsessed with all of this music that was coming out. Heavens to Betsy, I think, had an EP out that, you know, she was listening to. And there was this concert in the in the fall of 92. Bikini Kill was supposed to be the headliner. They had to cancel. Um, but Heavens to Betsy still showed up, as did Mecca Normal, which was this band out of uh, Vancouver that was influential on the scene. And, um, you know, Carrie Brownstein was just enthralled by the performance uh, by Heavens to Betsy, approached her after the show and said, you know, can, can I find out more about the Riot Girl scene? And Corin Tucker pulled out her notebook and, and got Carrie's address. And the way Carrie tells it, that was the moment when she knew she had, to, she had to leave that school she was at and transfer to Evergreen State so she could be in Olympia where all the action was happening. Um, and it was basically kind of the pull of Corin in particular that brought her to Olympia. In Olympia, you know, Carrie starts her own band. You had to start a band if you if you were there, or several bands. Um, and Excuse Thirteen was the name of uh, Carrie's band. Um, and 17? this was oh, Excuse sorry. Seventeen. <laughs> I corrected Ben. Thank I you. I'm not going to say anything else for the rest of the episode. That's it. <laughs> Yeah, so so Ben, so you were saying that um, well, there's, there's basically this there's a movement, and it's a very localized movement. You know, this is the hotbed. This is where things are happening. Right, and it, it's it's this it's this hotbed for sure, where bands are interacting and they're they're trying, you know, they're they're mixing and matching a lot with their band members, and so it is very typical, I think, for bands to just say, okay, let's let's try this new side project, and so you know, Corin and Carrie. Uh, said, let's let's try our own side project. Let's call it Slater Kinney, which is just the name of this road near their practice space. Um, you know, they, clearly they 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 weren't really being very ambitious. They're you know, this was just a side project. This wasn't even their main band for either of them. And then they both end up in Australia because they have a pen pal in Stephen O'Neill who uh, who was with the with this indie band out of Sydney uh, called the Canaines who just invited them to come over and they said, sure. So they end up hanging out, just crashing in his uh, living room and writing songs, hooking up with a drummer, an Australian drummer named Laura McFarlane, who had her own zine at the time. And, uh, you know, that, that first Slater Kinney album 
comes together, recorded in Melbourne on the fly, very little uh, practice or rehearsal of any kind. They just kind of were like, let's get these tracks down. We don't, you know, this is just a kind of a, a one-off thing as far as they were concerned. And we have this amazing document of their debut album. Yeah, absolutely. Um, if there's ever a word that dates a time, and it's not, we're talking about a feminist movement. We're not talking about grunge. The word pen pal just totally dated when that happened. I was like, <laughs> oh yeah, pen pals. Um, okay, let's actually move on to the actual album. Um, and because we've been talking for a while and we haven't talked about any music. Uh, Shuri and Fliss, either of you can go first. I don't really mind. Um, this is a short, punchy, raw. For me, it's probably not their best, but it's it's a great statement out of the out of the door, right? Um, Cherie, Bliss, I don't care who goes first. Yeah, I think it sounds like um, a band forming, doesn't it? It sounds like two guitarists just having fun together. It sounds from that era and that movement. It, it I feel like it was. Yeah, you can tell it's huge, hugely influenced by that earlier movement. Um, and the track sold out. It's so fierce and in your face. A, a lot of the reviews said it's quite monotone, but I totally don't get that. It's loud and brash and just sounds like they were having fun and enjoying themselves. Um, and yeah, it does sound a lot different to than what they created, but everyone starts somewhere and what a great start. For sure. Um, Cherie? Yeah, it's funny we were talking about Nirvana beforehand as well because that pops up throughout a few of the records. Um, mm -hmm. But I love the idea that, you know, we have to say goodbye to Kurt Cobain in the spring of 1994 and then his projection of, like, the future of music being with women exists in records like this. And I guess I should caveat and that I was very young when this album came out. So for me, and this will probably be similar, like we came in at maybe a later point, but then you go back and you discover this like, you know, discography of stuff before. And certainly as the two of us like playing in a band, it was very raw when we started and it was very angry. And I just hear that in these tracks, like a real man I, I love so much. I think it's so, yeah. the delivery mm. of that line from Corin is just brilliant. And um, I think we, we liked that as well. I like the idea of making people feel uncomfortable and putting stuff out there that kind of is tense and awkward and makes people think about perceptions that they've not heard in kind of traditional loud music before. No, I think that's absolutely, I mean, and there was, there was a lot of pigeonholing that had been happening. Uh, I mentioned earlier on bands like uh, the Lunatics and also Babes in Toyland, who had been putting out stuff at the sort of the turn of the decade, but they all got pigeonholed. Girl punk, uh, or oh, there's, there's the boy punk bands, and then there's the girl punk bands, and they're, they're sort of over here. Um, I had no idea Sleater Kinney existed for a long time. Um, and I think it's because when their first two albums came out, the UK indie music scene had sort of moved on a bit. Not as in moved on to something better, but moved on. We'd done our American bit with grunge. We'd had that fun. Britpop sort of coming around the corner. Everyone's listening to acid jazz for one summer. Um, but... The, the American guitar bands, even though that's exactly what I would have liked, just didn't get played. Didn't get played anywhere. People were looking, Blur was releasing stuff. Uh, Oasis were coming coming down the road. You know, there was, the, the, the British music press gets very distracted by shiny things. Uh, was and PJ Harvey not popular in the UK no, at that point? No, absolutely, she was. But she felt like she, what she was doing was very much on her own. 
there wasn't really anything else like cause I remember when I first heard PJ Harvey, which was the debut album, I, I was blown away by it. But I don't remember anything else. And I think it was because it seemed like there was nothing else like it at the time mm. that made that album so powerful. Um, but also with what Sheree was saying about having been probably too young to be aware of these albums at the time, I don't think that they were on the radar at all in the UK at this point. So yeah, I think, and actually, so I, think, I hadn't thought about that until you made your point because I was definitely sidelined by Elastica and Sleeper at that point. So I was probably doing <laughs> yeah. that and not being angry with Corin and Carrie, which I probably should have been doing. But I was just <laughs> lusting after Justine Frischman, if I'm honest. Uh, but but also, I mean, as a, uh, the the entire media scene in the UK, for example, in the mid '90s, were there were magazines like oh god, loaded and whatnot. It was it was Ladettes and Britpop. This was. This was the narrative that was going out. And then when there was, when the media did go, oh, yeah, uh, Spice Girls, Girl Power. And it's just like there's other stuff happening, but the UK media wasn't focused on that for a significant amount of time. It would take in US stuff in waves and then shove it out. And, and Nick's right. PJ Harvey was doing stuff. I mean, Drive is what, like 92, I think? It's yeah, yeah this, something um, like that. Yeah, but definitely in isolation. So, like for me, I I'm much later. I, I come in much later and sort of sort of come back. Um, okay. Well, We're if I can say one on. other, sorry, yes, one other thing is course. just we have to think about labels here because the first two albums come out on Chainsaw, which is a really small label, and um, they did a lot of amazing music, but it was a super DIY underground label. They didn't start recording for Kill Rock Stars until Dig Me Out. And so there's probably a distribution issue as well about what really makes it over into the UK record stores, to be honest. Well, even in the US, I, I, I don't think I don't think that Slater Kenny was really on people's radar until I mean they were on mine, but well, yes. <laughs> I, I was <laughs> well, exactly. I was you had your your, you know, frontline view that you had. Um, you know, but for for the rest of us, um, yeah, I, I would say Dig Me Out is when they became kind of nationally known. Um so yeah, those those first two albums were um for the cognoscenti, let's say, um, until they moved to Kill Rock Stars. Um, I, I think, I mean, yeah, obviously it may not have been distributed in UK record stores. Uh, John Peel was probably playing it, and I probably heard it on John Peel, but I wasn't paying attention. Yeah, abs- And my local indie disco, indie night, alternative club night, wasn't playing it either. And so, yeah, it just sort of washed me by for, for quite some time. We're going to move on. Because of time, um, we'll have plenty of time. To, we haven't even got to to dig me out yet because we've got to go through Call the Doctor, um, their second one, which was a year later. Is that right, Ben? Uh, yeah, that's right. Um, so you know they're they're uh, they're back home and um, Call the Doctor. Yeah, comes out in '96, and I mean I really think of this album as where they're they figure out their their formula in in a good way. I mean um, they also. I think around this time, Sarah, correct me if I'm wrong, um, they put their their old bands behind them and they're focusing on Slater Kenny. This is their band now. Um, yeah. And uh, so it, it's fascinating. I mean, just right off the bat, I mean, that that first uh, track, the title track, I mean, we get their voices kind of talking past each other. And that is the sound of Slater Kenny, as far as I'm concerned. And they, they you know, they, they took their first album to work it all out, but it's, it's there and, it, you know, even though they've had lots of transformations since then, that is the core to it. And, you know, it's something that Carrie has described as a single sonic sound with two guitars, two conversations. I like the way she says that it's two conversations, not one. They're not just sort of like, it's not some sort of little call and response thing they're doing. They're often like, 
really talking past each other and creating this really fascinating tension. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, th- this this was, you know, the album where Slater Kinney, as we know it, I would say, you know, really comes to fruition. Yeah, I mean, for me, this is this is when the dueling vocalist type thing, which has been done a lot since. There, and there, there have been, I know, you could go from as disparate as the Libertines to Wolf Parade with two different vocal styles shouting and taking turns. But this is one of, this is probably the first time I've noticed it looking back. Um, so there's, and, and what, I mean, we've got, I want to be your Joe Ramone. I mean, really good. Half another half an hour album is this? It's another sub thirty minutes. I'm a big fan of the sub thirty minutes. I have to say. <laughs> <laughs> um, Sarah, um, you said this was still on the same label. Um, was it just a matter of getting back in the studio and and churning out another one? Do you think, or was it let's make our first proper album? I, I hear that. I'm trying to think through the question to see if I have any store of knowledge that can address it. Or even just your I opinion. Do. I mean. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that like, as we were saying, um, I think it was Cherie who referred really helpfully to this, um, this fact that like in Olympia, you know, you could have a band um, or maybe this was Ben. I don't remember. In Olympia, like you would just have a side project. You would play with whoever that would be a band. There was a quote, a wonderful quote someone gave me from my book that in Olympia, a band is any song you ever played with anybody even once. Right. This reels in. And, you know, this is happening on the musical side. It's happening on the zine side, too. Like people will make their own zines and then they'll go travel for a weekend and like make a, a, a friend zine with the person that they're visiting. And, and it's the the constant going back and forth and and bringing other people on on a project is very much part of the the Olympia aesthetic and the the ethos of like DIY and just like making everything all the time and not being too precious about it. So it seems really clear as has already been said that the first album's part of that and then the second album as you guys said it's absolutely a situation where they're like okay this is the band now. All right, we're doing this. What like what happens if we actually like do this on purpose with the idea of it being a real thing? And and you get Call the Doctor. Um, as far as I know, that's the their first tour is for Call the Doctor. I don't think they toured on the self-titled um, because I'm pretty sure I would have been there if they had. Um, but they toured, so they toured on Call the Doctor, and that was that was sort of their um, their introduction to a wider audience in the U.S. I think awesome, thank you. Um, so yeah, I mean, this, again, like I said, it's short and it's punchy. Uh, long-term listeners to the pod know where I stand on long albums, long songs, and short songs. I will surprise you in the next episode, Nick. I will surprise you. Um, Fliss, you, you, you said that the last album was fierce. Uh, it, you know, Some people have described it as monotone, but you didn't hear that at all. Um, was this al- is this album like a step in a, uh, in a different direction for you? Is it a step up? Is it more of the same? Like, how, where, where, where do you think they're going? Um, it's definitely more full sounding, of course. And I think Ben and Sarah kind of rounded up really nicely. The guitars, um, they've just found their sound, I think. They've really locked in together. Call the Doctor was never, obviously, Cherie said we found Slater Kinney, Slater Kinney at a different time in our lives because we were a bit younger here. But obviously, we went back straight away. And Call the Doctor was one album that I never sat with for that long. Um, also, she was 
going out with you don't mind me saying this but at the time she she was going out with a guy and his band who I didn't like that much and his band was called call the doctor and it just completely put me off so I never really sat with it for that long but um obviously I've listened to it since um and yeah it's great it's it's full of noise I like it yeah as I said I mean I, I do find it hard to separate the first two albums in terms of they're, they're, they're ones it's like it, it's more of the same but better like here's here's the rough cut here's the studio cut but it's not they have changes of sounds later that i think are more pronounced oh, of course but yeah. for me the first two albums they just sit together as a one two piece um sheree uh, i'm not going to ask you about the band call the doctor no please um, don't. i'm going to ask you more about <laughs> ask you more about, <laughs> ask you more about this album um so i mean it has it, hasn't sat that well with Fliss originally. She didn't spend that as much time with it. Was Is this the type of Slater Kinney that appealed to you or are we going to see that later? Yeah, I think it's getting there. Like when I met the aforementioned guy at the band, I wasn't like, oh yeah, ding ding, my favourite Slater Kinney album. I was like, eh. um, uh, but <laughs> I do, I do love this record and I think there are some amazing tracks on there. You mentioned I want to be your Joey Ramone. And for me, it's it's just that ambition as well. And just that, and I'll probably name drop Pete Townsend's windmills like so much in this, but they really strike out with a very clear goal of like, we want to be those revered rock icons. And it's totally cool for us as women to want that space. So the idea of talking about, you know, pictures on your bedroom wall and I just love that because that became they became the women on our bedroom walls as well. And um, yeah, that was really special. And um, I think Ben made a lovely point about, yeah, them kind of interlocking. And there was a great uh, interview with Carrie in Rolling Stone where she talks about how she felt once they were doing those vocals, it felt like they fused together and there was like a lightning bolt between the two of them. And I just find that so powerful. And you really hear that. And that only kind of gets brighter with the rest of the discography. Um, thank you, Puff. Um, so what, we're we're currently mid-90s, was it? Mm-hmm. I, sort of got, I lost my own notes, 94, 95? Yeah, that was, that was 96, um, Call the Doctor. Right? They've took, so they've gone on their first tour, as, as Sarah said. They're sort of going in a direction. Um, and that direction is moving straight on to one of their, I'm sorry, one of their best albums. Like we, I know we've got other things to talk about, but spoiler, this is one of my top two. Um, we're moving into Dig Me Out, which is brilliant from start to finish we've got dig me out one more hour little baby there's there's not a single moment on this album that i could pick apart or would want to pick apart and often see this see sheree is going oh my god i'm agreeing with you and usually usually guests stare at me with some incredulous opinion about some band nick likes no that this was fucking brilliant absolutely brilliant i've got nothing else to say People talk. <laughs> <laughs> well, for for those of us, yeah, uh, unlike Sarah, who who was paying attention from the beginning. I mean, this is this is when everybody had to pay attention to Sleater Kinney, um, and um, I, I sort of my personal experience uh, with them kind of starts around this time because I was actually living overseas in the mid '90s for a couple of years, so I felt kind of disconnected from the like, what are the you know what are the new you know cool American bands. And I just have this memory of, you know, 1997, I, you know, it, it did, it did get a lot of critical acclaim. I'm like, all right, I'll, let's, let's try this out. I just, I have this distinct memory of putting in that CD and just listening to that title track and being like, 
holy shit, this is really good because <laughs> you get you get you get the you get um, you get Janet Weiss right away too. Their drummer coming in um, as this really essential component. I mean, you know, those first two albums with Laura McFarlane are fine, but once Janet Weiss comes in as the their drummer who they would keep for 22-ish years. <laughs> um, that is just like an amazing kind of, um, you know, partnership, basically. And you hear it right away. I mean, you just like that title track comes in, you, you know, you hear Carrie's opening riff, which is brilliant. You hear that just wallop of drums from Janet and then Corin's voice. And, and like, I was just in right away from that. I was, and this was, you know, a band that I just you know, got a little obsessed with at that point. Um, perfect. Um, so obviously, um, again, I hadn't, I had never heard of them at the time. Um, it was 97. There was, I was listening to probably spiritualized and Radiohead as, you know, English kids tended to do at that time. Um, Shuri, we're going to do a different order, order this time, just mainly because you looked like this was also one of your favorite albums. So I'm going straight to you yeah. because, because people rarely agree with me. You're so right, though. You set it up yes! completely. My goodness. Yeah, it's probably one of my favorite records of all time. Um, it's just, as Ben said, honestly, I get shivers even thinking about that first guitar riff. It's impossible for me to not feel that in my bones. We, um, Fliss and I went to see them for the reunion tour, you know, fast forwarding a lot in at the Roundhouse. And it's an old track and they've got a lot of stuff to get through. And I didn't think they'd play it. And it was the last song of the set in the encore. And I just mm. went mental. I was just so really happy. I, I love it to pieces. It's so it's- angry. Um, but there's pop. And that's the thing. And I think we'll head into that a bit more. But for me, it's that blissful intersection, which I look for in all music, where I want a really angry guitar. And then I want kind of snarling pop lyrics. And yeah, this just hit that for me. Um, uh, yeah, and and obviously I, I talked about it a bit in the intro, but the cover, which I did not realise was a homage to the Kinks, was just the coolest because you know years to come I get my second third guitar and I also pick a guitar with really lovely lipstick pickups and yeah, so arguably for me Corin's guitar on that you know record sleeve is is even better. Sorry, Kinks fans. <laughs> I, I I think you're right. There is that sort of mix between sort of fears and and there's hooks you know there are there's definitely hooks in there as well that sort of stay with you as you as you're sort of going along um sarah um as far as I, i'm going to ask you something and you'll go uh let me just check um <laughs> but as far as, as less so much factual you know i don't I, maybe they played something in november but in terms of you and the music at this time how was the scene for you you know, was there now a burgeoning, I'm going to use the word riot girl because it's, was there this burgeoning feminist punk scene um, or, or was, were Sleeta Kinney now the only sort of torchbearers? You know, was there other stuff going on? That's a long winded question. Um, can I answer your question sideways slash Absolutely. not answer Please it? do. <laughs> um, because here's what I want to say about Dig Me Out in the context of the first three albums as a unit. And this does have to do with Riot Girl, so it is getting to your question, but not necessarily in a like scene history way. Um, Dig Me Out, like that's the first, that's the beginning of this album. Um, and what are you digging out from? You go back and you listen to the first two albums and you hear, I mean, I really want to propose that there's this sort of like 
Persephone up from the underworld, um, at, not the same as underground, up from the underworld arc happening in the first three albums. Or the first, the first two, if you listen to them, they're super sludgy, super low, and there's so much Dinosaur Jr. happening here. Like Corin is detuned so, so low, it's so growly, and like the, the, you know, the treble is just like non-existent in a lot of these guitar parts. And the songs also, they're all about like, like where desire comes up in the songs, the the singer is always like, I don't want this. I don't want that. Like there's this like absolutely like oppositional, like fighting against something that you're being told you want and you don't want. Okay. And by the second album, there's this sort of like sardonic, like, don't you want me? You know what? Your desire is fucked up and I'm going to like sarcastically like throw it back at you thing. The third one is where this sort of comes together. Like I honestly, I mean, I'm thinking about this as this like, like, dialectical spiral up through like punk rock greatness in that like comes surfaces in dig me out where like it's a suddenly it's about the music and like the music can hold it all so now when there's a song that's about how fucked up heteronormative relations are it's in the context of this like springsteen like johnny let's hit the road you know you get it and not what you want and you get in the car and like the singer is like clearly like gonna crash her and her boyfriend like in a fiery crash she's driving 80 95 maybe more like and that like you're accessing the canon of rock you're accessing the history of rock mythology instead of fighting this and resisting that like in fact like that comes all together in this core and combusts into like a redo of rock um and that i think is also like you know riot girl to get back to your question, was oh, I based- might just I might just record a new question and edit it. <laughs> in. <laughs> so so okay, then I'll ask it and I'll 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 pivot in a way that doesn't require the old question. Riot Girl at its best was it was this sort of time limited thing about what it's like to be a female adolescent in a patriarchy and to like fight against messages of what you're expected to do, fight to not fight a bit against what it means to not want the things you're told to want. But like you can't live that way for the rest of your life. Like you go through that, you 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 do a sort of like purging or purifying of of yourself, and then you come out in this other way, ready to make this new thing. And that's why I get so moved when I hear "Dig Me Out" because you really do feel like you're bursting out into the sunlight. You can hear. I mean, I'm gonna suggest that like when you go in and and edit this podcast, it would be really cool to listen to the first five seconds of each of the first three albums. Because the first two are very sludgy, very low, very like grumbly. And then all of a sudden it's all treble at the big It's like octaves above where it started. Boom, Exactly. You know, I I'm getting goosebumps. This is a freaking great record. You know, what what one thing I just wanted to say too, I mean, I I I've sort of lived with this album since 1997. And it reveals itself in different ways, you know, uh, over time. I didn't really know much about the band or their history, but, you know, it, it all came out uh, eventually that, you know, the Corin and Carrie had dated and, and uh, a lot of the lyrics reflect their kind of short relationship and the breakup. And it's, it's fascinating reading Carrie's memoir, Hunger Makes Me a Modern Girl, but she talks about some of the songs on Dig Me Out, not even realizing at the time that, Corin was singing about her. I mean, it's like, you yeah. know, one more hour. Oh, you've got the darkest eyes. Or Jenny, do you see her face when she's gone? No, it, it's heartbreaking. I isn't mean, it? Th- those, yeah, that's that's about heartbreak. And and it was very personal. And, and yet, you know, 
that's just sort of one facet of all of this that you know that that works for me. I mean, you have kind of heartbreak, heartbreak, kind of lurking behind these songs, and it just adds to that emotional impact. I mean, maybe I mean they, they already point. It was already pointed out that they they had. I thought we had two conversations. Maybe that one conversation they'd have realized that they were singing about each other. Right? <laughs> maybe that was the problem. Who, who knows? Um, does anybody else have anything more to say on on, on dig me out before we move on? Um, just that it was obviously, I don't know if it's been brought up, obviously, but it was the, you know, introduction of Janet, who became an essential part of the band's sound. And ev- every instrument was, um, you know, more, not, not no one instrument was more important than the other. And they each had that, you know, she made melodies with her drums and it starts here. It just gets progressively better obviously as the albums go on but wow she really brought something special to this band yeah totally um mental note do not move on without talking about the drums when you have a drummer on the pod (laughs) (laughs) i don't know i don't know much about drumming but all i know is you know janet's janet was so inspirational to me perfect now awesome thank you um so last time last time ben was on Ben came on and we, we did two episodes on Yola Tango. One of the other guests was Jeffrey Lewis, uh, singer-songwriter Jeffrey Lewis. And we got to a point midway through Yola Tango's career, after Ben had talked about his, one of his favorite albums for oh, about five, six minutes, where, where Jeffrey basically said, this is where things went wrong because bands stopped rocking and started sounding nice and less rocky and a bit more polished and a bit nicer. Um, we're moving into hot rock, which for me, I really struggled with. And it fits into what Jeffrey Lewis was saying about how some bands sort of get to the midpoint. They're rocking, rocking, rocking. And then there's this sort of, you're, you're still doing good stuff. And you're, you're entitled, you're obviously you're allowed, you're allowed to change. It's your band. But it left me cold. I really struggled. I listened really? to it twice. Yeah. And I was just like, eh. You know, it's uh, interesting you bring up Yola Tango because there is a connection here. Um, oh, I know. I'm letting you do it. Okay. <laughs> the producer, So, right? yeah, you, you have these first three albums. They're, they're sort of very, very punky, you know, albums and sort of searing albums. And they do kind of take a step back from that. But this, this is like what they do over their whole career. It's like, well, let's subvert people's expectations a little bit. After Dig Me Out, you know, people were expecting another album like that. Instead, they decide to uh, bring in a different producer, and that producer is Roger Mutno. And Roger Mutno, they liked because he had worked with Yola Tango. He had uh, produced I Can Hear the Heart Beating as One, my favorite Yola Tango album. They liked what he did there, and they said, okay, well, let's try this. It'll bring, it'll bring something new to our sound. And, um, and it works. I mean, again, you know, maybe Jeffrey Lewis isn't a, as much of a fan of it just because it is, it is a kind of a, a change of gears uh, from what they were doing before, but um, you know, I I really like it. I mean, I, again, like at the time, I think I was expecting another dig me out, and I didn't get it. But you know, it kind of works its magic on you. I really think that it is actually one of their strongest albums. I think Sarah agrees with me. Um, there's there's just um... and people are disagreeing with me again. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> so I mean, I just love you know, burn don't freeze, um, wonderful, and again, that's sort of like the doomed relationship where they're where they're, you know, giving these different perspectives, with their different voices, uh, a song like Get Up. I, I love it. I mean, they're, they're doing a little sort of Kim Gordon uh, homage in that one, I guess. It sounds very Sonic Youthy, um, but very kind of soul searching and meditative. 
the size of our love maybe the saddest saddest song that they've ever done i love that song Uh, oh my god yeah and um you know, they, they end with the sort of jazzy thing, a quarter to three. It, it's just it's just very it's varied in a way that the first three albums aren't. And I, I just love that at that point in their career, they're like, yeah, let's let's just mix it up a little bit. Try a different sound. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely more accomplished I'm, I'm, for sure. Like I say, I mean, it left me totally cold. So I'm going to move on to other people immediately before I, I get more people start to dislike me. Uh, Nick. You've been quite quiet. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I mean, I do really like this one, and it gives me great pleasure to say that when you've just announced it's the one that left you cold. Um, but, I mean, the songs I liked in particular, I think, probably mostly be mentioned already. I mean, The Size of Our Love is is their most Yola Tango moment, probably. Uh, I really like Band from the End of the World as well. Um, yeah, I think it's a great album. And that's all I've got to say. <laughs> <laughs> um I've got a question, actually. This is a question for, I mean, mainly for uh, Fliss and Cherie. It's about music in general. Um, And I'm going to come on to this in the next episode as well. Producers. I mean, here we've got, they've they've gone, they found a producer who's done stuff they like, who has come in and they've made their most Yola Tengo type album. Um, How often do you think it is that the band drives that process or is it a matter of hey producer you you have a sound come in and give us that sound i mean do you think how how much of that was them when they're recording and how much of it was um mutino i think it'd be interesting to ask that question when we talk about the center won't hold as well yeah, um, definitely. <laughs> uh, oh, and and the woods that's yes, when I'm bringing of it back. Course. The woods. Yeah, yeah, because it's a really good point on uh, multiple levels for different records. Um, yeah, I don't. I get. I guess I did get some of those references, so that has worked in a way, hasn't it? And and we'll come on to like the flaming lips moment as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know, Fliss. Have you had experiences? Because you with some remixes and stuff for the Gales, obviously you've done a bit of that. And I guess it's interesting oh, to see. Spoiler alert. Spoil- well, <laughs> I'm not giving the big names away, but it's, but it's interesting you when did, you, oh, you, heard you, it did talk, you did talk about her ex-boyfriend. I mean, this is a, this is a minor comeback. Yeah, it's fine. Professional. Um, yeah. I just think yeah. it's interesting sort of giving the reins over to your sound, to someone else who then might manipulate that in a different way that you hadn't seen before. Uh, yeah, I I know exactly what you mean. People are so frightened of change, aren't they? But like when I just, I can feel that they just wanted to go somewhere else after, you know, after a while. And, and I kind of thought that they might, I didn't think that the hot rock was immediate for me, but now I, after, you know, years of listening to it, I adore it, but it is totally different. Um, it's more relaxed. It's kind of gloomy. Um, and uh, I don't think there's anything wrong with trying to go in different directions. I've never really worked with a producer like that, so I'm not sure I'm not sure how that really works. But they must have, you know, they're, they are, you know, they, they, they know what they want to do. I just think they just wanted a bit of change, maybe, yeah, different I direction. I think, I, think, I think sometimes some producers might turn up and go, okay, what do you want? And they'll, they'll, they'll meet in the middle. And some producers, I think, turn up and go, here's my bag of tricks. <laughs> I, I'm going to turn this one up. I'm going to do this. And now you sound like X person. Sarah, hello. Um, while Ben was talking, you looked like you agreed with him. Everyone agrees. I'm aware. I'm totally aware that I'm, I'm the outlier on this. Um, this change of sound. Um, 
I mean, what did I mean? Obviously, what does it do for you? But also, what do you think it did for the band in terms of a band growing who had become this uh, punky uh, thing? Thing? Fuck it. Ben's a linguist. This punky thing, <laughs> and now they're releasing something that's not a punky thing, right? Um, you know, I honestly, think that- I'm usually better than this. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. Um, <laughs> Dig me out is. Dig Me Out is like pure rock. I remember when it came out that people were just like, oh, here's like the purest rock and roll I've ever heard. And like it's at what's so amazing. And I'm, I'm this is all in like heavy, heavy scare quotes. This is the purest rock and roll we've ever heard. And it's really incredible because it's girls and like girls can rock. Like I swear, th- those of you who are like, oh, I was five when this came out. You don't know how sexist the 90s were about rock. But it really was like, oh. You know, these girls and they're loud and they sound good and they like keep a beat and, and they play all the instruments. Um, so that was a little bit of the the like dig me out thing. And what I love is that they didn't rest on that laurel at all. But that, you know, what I hear in it's it's so interesting to hear you guys talking about the hot rock is like, oh, they're pulling back from something or there's something gentler happening. I just hear it as like there's more complexity, there's more assurance, there's more range, there's like like something has been achieved with dig me out a sense of power a sense of like okay we can we can do anything and so why would you stop at, at one thing um the the sort of counterpoint between the voices between the um between the guitars gets so much more um deep and nuanced on the hot rock honestly this is um in many ways this is one of my favorite albums i was uh the year that it came out i was touring a lot with uh, a band of my own and so this was on heavy rotation in the car and it's some of the songs are really about being in a band and about why are you in a band? Nobody mentioned the end of you. I, you know, other, in addition to the fact that she rhymes Athena with Mina, um, bless me with Athena. There's no Mina. She's the best. So, you know, this idea of like band as, as like Odyssey and like feminist punk musician as Ulysses, which I just so love, but also this idea of like, that's going to be constant through so many of their later albums. Like there are going to be sirens of pulling you away from why you're doing this. And you're going to have to keep coming back to what it's really about for you. And so for me as a musician and as a writer, I always really appreciated when that came out in a, like in a really determined way. Yeah. But maybe that is it. I mean, people go, Oh, look, Primal Scream changed their sound after two, every two albums. Radiohead. Oh, they got big and rocky. They then decided to electronic. And then maybe it's a well. Why are why are the girls doing it? Um, the, if the boys can get away with it, why, you know, in that sort of thing, the music press would hold up your radio heads and your primal screams for changing their sound. And maybe, yeah, maybe questioning this change of sound was, you know, everyone, should, you know, I just didn't like it. Anyway, moving on, <laughs> moving on. Um, the final episode, the final album we're going to talk about on this one is all hands on the bad one. I'm going to go to Fliss first uh, because you did the introduction, mm-hmm. um, which people will have already heard. Um, I mean, for me, this is a companion album to Hot Rock. Um, this sort, we've got the first three, then you've got these two, and then we move off into a different direction. Um, had you were you into uh, Slater Kinney at this by this point? Uh, yes. Yeah, I was, yeah. Um, I got into them actually through um, my partner at the time. He um, was an inline skater, like a, you know, extreme sports skater. And he would always watch um, 
these skate videos and I would watch them with him and they had amazing soundtracks and it's where I heard like all of the music from this well not from this era but previously um you know Bikini Kill um all of that and Sleater Kinney it was the first time I'd heard them through these skate videos and um yeah Youth Decay was the first song I'd ever heard I was immediately just totally involved. I'd already kind of thought about, you know, doing doing some music, wanting to play, and I just fell in love with the drums um, all over the album. I just absolutely adore the album. It has such a place in my heart because it was where I discovered so many other things through this. Um, yeah, I talk about it all in my intro, so I don't want to repeat myself, but... Um, yeah, it was immediate. So yeah, it's and I think with most people with most bands, the one that gets you in. Yeah, this wherever is my that, entry. Wherever that yeah. is, is your one. It was my entry point, and it's yeah, it just holds so much for me because it's how it made me want to be in a band. It's why I became a drummer, and um, yeah, it really means so much to me. And all of the songs, I yeah, I just love them all. They're they're so catchy. There's hooks galore. Um, the voices are incredible. The drums are just so rhythmic and all over the shop. It, yeah, big influence on me. Totally. Um, also, I mean, last time, last time you were on, we had a brief conversation at the end of it about gatekeeping. You know, uh, gatekeepers of music. You know, uh, particularly in terms of the fact of you being in the Nightingales and and fans. Sort of having this sort of well, no, I, I choose the professional <laughs> on this album is is a scathing takedown of the idea of gatekeepers you know, musically. You know, you can't listen to this, you can't do this, you can't do that, and it's yeah, absolutely amazing. True. Um, ben, do we still have Mutano? No, no, no. They, they. Oh, that's uh... why I liked it. <laughs> <laughs> Mutano was, was just for the hot rock. Yeah. So it's interesting because um, you know. Um, all hands on the bad one. Um, Carrie later called it a reset button because the band actually was going through some struggles a bit with the recording of um, Hot Rock and then the the tour. Um, Carrie um, was in a lot of pain because of a, a back injury, I think. And so, so this was sort of their reset button. And um, so they're back with John Goodmanson, who they had worked with before. And so it does kind of, in, in a way, kind of go back to the punk energy of of those earlier albums. Uh, yeah. Especially on youth decay. And one of my favorite uh, songs from the band, you're no rock and roll fun. I, I mean, that is such a great song. I, I just kind of imagine this like parallel universe where that's like a huge hit on the charts or whatever. It's like that should, you know, I want to live in that world where, you know, that's, that's a big hit, <laughs> but um, it's, just, I just find that perfect. And, but they're also, you know, you see they're, they're maturing as artists and it, it comes through in their lyrics, especially on, um, you know, uh, Ballad of the Lady Man and also Number One Must Have, where they're kind of looking back on their Riot Girl roots and looking at, you know, what's happened since then, what happened to those sort of feminist ideals. And, you know, Sarah Sarah could uh, expound on this for sure, because it, this is the time of, you know, like we were saying before, Spice Girls, Girl Power, this kind of commodified form of of, you know, what Riot Girl might have stood for back then and they're looking back and having this kind of critical reappraisal. Sarah, I think you wrote a you wrote a, like a whole 
uh, review of this album, I think, when it came out. So you have a lot I, more to say I about it. I did, <laughs> in fact. And if you found it, then you, you're a better Googler than I am. But I, <laughs> I, I do remember sort of pouring my, my heart into that review when All Hands on the Bad One came out and being super moved by Number One Must Have, which to my mind is the best song on the album. And I want to point out that the... Um, I just want to offer a slight refinement to what you were saying because the the sort of hard thing that's prompting this like reflection back on Riot Girl isn't so much like the Spice Girls or, you know, watered down versions of feminism, but literal violence against women. You know, she the the this like Woodstock reunion concert had just happened. Oh, yeah. There were all these sexual assaults there, and that's what Corin is, is singing about where she sings where will there always be concerts where women are raped, right? And then with the idea of like sorry, I my four-year-old is like, do you, I don't know if you can hear this. There's a bunch of like stomping going on. Um okay, we'll I just, don't like it. Um adds texture. <laughs> right? Um, you know, but I, I love that that's that's sort of the key. That and also um she talks in interviews about the fact that she wrote Number One Must Have, reflecting back on Riot Girl, having been asked to be part of this um Riot Girl retrospective, like roundtable discussion at the Experience Music Project. Um, that was one of the first attempts to sort of look back over what Riot Girl had been and, and gather oral histories about it. I found it super useful when I was writing my book to to have these interviews have already been done. Um and the question of like, everybody's supposed to be over it by then, right? By the late 90s, early 2000s, like we were all too grown up. We're all too cool to like care about something or get mad about things. And yet, like when you actually take a second and look and you see that the same shit's still going on, you start to ask yourself like, well, well how am I actually, what am I doing to change this or what am I doing to speak to it? And that's what I hear Corin doing in Number One Must Have in a way that gives me goosebumps every single goddamn time. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm, t- I'm desperately trying to think of, of some way to segue out of that, and I don't have one. <laughs> um, Cherie, Cherie, we have talked about first albums, and we have talked about uh, the commodification of, uh, of the Riot Girl movement, and we've talked about violence towards women at concerts. You can choose any of those three. Yeah, I mean, I'm probably not going to pick the one you wanted to hone in on, but number three. Um, yeah, I really felt that track as well, number one must have. And actually, I wrote a point in my notes about when we were talking about McCluskey on one of the previous mm-hmm. episodes. He, um, Falcus makes quite a lot of quite forward thinking comments and um, put downs about the future. And, you know, I think it was a thing about plastic forks and mocking people about you know being more eco-friendly and I think to know that they recorded this album like 20 years ago and one of the lines is about you know the number one must is that we are safe and that's 20 years on and I don't want to get all emotional on here but you know there's lots we just haven't made as much progress as we should have and for me that's one of the the joys of Cita Kinney is that they they fly that fucking flag for the political is personal because they bring that stuff up and they do it in such a way that there is, you know, the hand claps and there's the new wave guitar vibes of the go-go's. So it lures you in, but then it's also like, here are some really hard facts that you need to know. And this is stuff that we, yeah, need to talk about. So it's, um, it's a great record. And yeah, as like a music journo, I love some of those scathing lines and Fliss and I had a good crack at doing similar in our own band. So 
yeah, I was a big fan of this record too. Also, um, the the humor. I mean, we're talking about some very serious topics, yeah. But it can On be just really side. funny. Like milk, yeah. milkshake yeah, and yeah, honey yeah. is just a funny song. Yeah. I mean, I, I just puts a smile on my face. Just the 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 picture they're painting of this kind of silly fling in Paris or whatever. I don't know. I, I just appreciate that too. They're they're not just this, that's it. You know, serious band talking about serious things, but they they can really do it all. Okay. Uh, on that note, we're probably gonna. Probably a good time to wrap up this episode. Now, we are not leaving Seto Kinney uh, in any way, shape, or form, and we will be returning um, to continue discussing similar themes and others in the next episode. Um, but this five albums in is a good time for us to move to wrap up uh, this one. Um, Cherie, thank you ever so much thank for coming, you. coming on. Fliss, thank you ever so much. Thank you. Uh, ben, thanks for coming back. Always a pleasure. Sarah, it's been great to have you on. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, Nick. Cheers. And we'll, um, well, we'll, we'll all be back in the next episode. See you then. Bye. 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 Oh, my God, I rambled a lot. Jesus. You call them Sleater Kinney too, right? Like all those people who say David Bowie. It'll take years for me to unlearn the habit. And it doesn't help that when I was growing up, the regional dialect for Woodlouse was a Slater. But there you have it, Slater Kinney. Anyway, thank you for today's amazing roster of guests. We had Sarah Marcus, author of Girls to the Front, which quite apart from being the definitive book on the riot girl revolution, is also an excellent study of feminism and young womanhood. It truly was an honour to have her on the show. We were also rejoined by the linguist and writer Ben Zimmer and both members of Violet Violet, Sharia Moore and the Nightingale's Fliss Kitson. You may have heard them both here before, but it was just brilliant having them both together. Thank you, everyone. But I'm not done yet. Thank you also to my vociferous co-host Ewan for chairing the discussion, cutting the show together and refraining from griping about Targo Margo. Thanks also to Jonathan Fisher for our excellent theme music. If you enjoyed the show, we have a Patreon at patreon.com slash tempfans. And since Spotify don't want to sponsor us yet, we're looking to you for support. If that's asking too much, then just spread the word or leave us a review. It all helps. We'll be back next week for the concluding episode, bringing us right up to this year's new release, The Path of Wellness. Be sure not to miss it. Until then, I'm Nick Hilditch, but I want to be your Joey Ramone. <laughs>